You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. There were these spaces in the East where nobody was living and artists were just filling them up. And there was so much room and space for people to just make art and, and playing gigs and doing interviews and punk rock shows with me and my machine. And it just kept growing. And I and it was overlooking like bombed out buildings from my window. That was an incredible experience to realize the simplicity and the power of these songs. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And I am so excited because our guest today is someone who has been making feminism feel fun and sexy and radical for over 20 years. Meryl Nisker, better known by her stage name Peaches, is a rock star, producer, director, visual artist, and performance artist who rose to fame in the electroclash era of the early 2000s. Her solo albums include the terrifically transgressive Fancy Pants Hoodlum, The Teaches of Peaches, Fatherfucker, Impeach My Bush, I Feel Cream, and Rub. And she's about to embark on her first international tour since 2017 in celebration of the 20th anniversary of The Teaches of Peaches. Her work has meant so much to so many for so long, and I can't wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Peaches, to our show. Yay! Yay! Hi! Hello, hello, <laughs> hello. Hello. Happy to be here. You know, uh, I, I would love to begin with your origin story, if I can. I know that you were born in the 60s in Toronto. Mm-hmm. How did you find your way to music, and what set you on the path to becoming the fatherfucker who we all know and love today? Um, I was born in Toronto in a suburb, and I went to um, Jewish parochial school, so that's like half-day Hebrew, half-day English, and I was not very happy about it. I didn't understand why I had to learn this language that nobody spoke quite seriously it sounds doesn't sound cute but that's what I thought also the teachers were very rude very mean they weren't very um uh you know didn't help me not wanting to learn they yeah it was not a great environment but somehow uh I kept going back uh it wasn't very creative and um I loved music but I had no idea I could be a musician I thought you had to like learn actual notes and music and be born into it. Or I didn't realize you could be a musician. So um, what I did know in the arts was I knew theater because we had a lot of family in New York and we would go visit and we would go to musicals. I would um, also see a lot of musical movies on TV, things like that. And I listened to a lot of very pop radio and at the time in the 60s early 70s it was actually am radio um so that was sort of what i was doing um what i was into um i i really didn't have a lot of encouragement at school to be creative and it's sad it's sad how they you know don't really give you that chance you play the recorder if you play a wrong note they're like you don't get a solo if you try and sing something no no there's no idea of progression it's just do it now, do it for the parents, 
dress up, blah, blah, blah. And my parents didn't really care. They weren't that, you know, interested in being a perfection, but I just, it just bothered me. And, and through the years I started to get more and more, I, I questioned more and more why, why it was like that and who it was benefiting and how kids were learning and what I was interested in and how that didn't get attention. Um, so more and more I, I turned to theater. I wanted to be a theater director. Um, and I still didn't know I could be a musician. I ended up in university uh, in a theater directing program with seven other people at York University. Uh, I did it for a year. I kept telling people I wanted to make cool musicals. They really thought that I was um, not a serious student by saying that. They were like, we're doing Voltaire here. We are, <laughs> we are you know, we are exploring Samuel Beckett, you know. And um, I was like, I want to make cool musicals like, you know, Ken Russell and Tommy and like Phantom of the Paradise. Fuck yeah. I was like, Tina Turner, you know, Gypsy Acid Queen. That, that, that to me, that speaks to me. So um, I dropped acid once mm-hmm. on a Monday night. And the next day I woke up. And I didn't, I've only done acid twice in my life, to be honest. I've done mushrooms a lot, but I dropped acid. I woke up the next night and I'm like, I don't need this course. I am not going to continue here (laughs) I it's not my place no I'm not mm -mm, no so instead I actually uh did a lot of just exploring at York University and other departments like um you know uh multidisciplinary artistic programs and those also proved quite challenging you know I did my first visual art programs and teachers we're not accepting that I've never, ever drawn in my life. So I'd be life drawing and the teacher would lean over me and go, you're stupid. She had this accent and I'd be like really discouraged, but it didn't matter. Um, but needless to say, the second half of the program was very conceptual. And all of a sudden I was like pulling out piano pieces and finding old blenders and making like ready-made art and having concepts and writing, you know, um, poetry or lyrics for it and then she's like now you're brilliant you know so or there'd be other classes <laughs> or I, I'd be in a class where it's like multi um uh disciplinary it would be like dancers musicians visual artists and actors and um the teacher was quite an amazing musician he had a glass glass orchestra where he'd fill glasses with different water and you know, make different tones. But whenever the assignment was music-based, he'd always pick the musicians to do the music. But whenever it was dance-based, everybody could do it. So um, we had a lot of fights, actually, because I'd be like, why can't I play music, even though I'm not a musician, you know? And so just a lot of exploration, a lot of questioning. And then, you know, when I was younger, more like junior high and things like that and, and high school, questioning these songs that I loved and also like, why... Why didn't they ever include me or my perspective that I didn't even realize was queer or even just like empowered women perspective? Why is it always like big legged woman ain't got no soul or squeeze my uh, big squeeze my lemon till the juice runs down? I like whatever it was, you know, and I was like, why I, I don't feel included and all these things. So all those questions bubbled up inside me, plus the fact <laughs> That by the age of seven, I really wanted to sing, but I didn't, you know, like I said, I didn't know. I know I'm going out of order, but you don't mind that, right? People can make their own. Don't not mind at all. Um, I remember 
at a cousin's bar mitzvah. I was seven and I turned to my mom and said, can I sing with the band? And she's like, I don't know. Can you sing? And I said, yeah, I, I can. I, we, we listened to Barbara Streisand at home. I want to sing the way we were. So mm-hmm. I went to the band and they were eating dinner and then I sang the way we were. And then I had to sing the way we were for every bar mitzvah wedding <laughs> until I was like 15. And I was like, no, until I was probably like 17. I was like, I play electric guitar now. I'm going to do peace of my heart and play electric guitar. And then they stopped asking me. So um, <laughs> stuff like that. But, you know, just all these questions and not really understanding, not even knowing what art school was or that it existed. And not that my parents were not educated or or interested. It's just that it wasn't really, you know, their thing. So um, and I found my way and um, by hell or high water, actually, because it's just I didn't even know. It just kept pushing me into it. Uh, pushing me into my questions. And I had folk bands with, you know, ex-girlfriends where we'd be singing about each other, about how we're hurting each other, things like that. You know, I, I, it started in a daycare. I was working in a daycare. It was so boring when I, when I had my first job still finishing university, uh, like my first job, not out of university, but like knowing that it was coming to an end. So uh, and all the teachers were so tired and bored and all these kids really, they needed some stimulation. And I was like, I'm learning guitar. And I developed some program through my theater ideas and creativity where kids would role play. And I took all those ideas where teachers were never giving me um, a chance to process things, you know, just you put on a dress, you're going to play the princess. No, now you're going to be the the pirate, you know, and and I would tell stories and I'd let all the kids move around in whatever they were and have a chance to choose whatever they wanted to be. And even if I had a story with like five pirates, three alligators and no princesses, that was fine. I would make the story. It's not like we need a princess. Oh, no. Now we have too many princess. You know, I, it was just, mm-hmm. it was about not shutting down kids. It was about letting them have space. And it really became a popular program. I started to teach all over um, every YMCA in Toronto. There was around six of them. And then I started teaching at private schools and um, after school programs, you know, because I developed and I listened to the kids. And I also learned a lot about uh, kids as, um, you know, uh, just holding their attention, you know, and how to hold attention. Um, but but also not be the focus, still give them, you know, so, sort of being like give room for them. But also, yeah. Anyway, um, so at the time I was teaching and it didn't become daycare because I ended up doing my own programs. I would teach like nine classes a day. I was also developing all my own musical um, ideas. Yeah. So and that takes me up until somewhere if you want to. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm so I'm so happy that I asked and that you told me in this way. I'm kind of flipping out a little bit that there's so much overlap between my story and yours. Really? I always know that that I related to you in so many ways, but like I'm also Jewish. I also underwent Jewish education growing up. And like they were so like I was taught by Hasidic women who were like just like the iron fist. And I was like, no way, I'm radical. I want to be free. And they were like, yeah. like crushing me. And I was like, get me out of here. And and I also studied directing in college and I was 
was no like way. too weird for that what? at Emerson. And after that, I also taught at an after school daycare program. And I started an improv me? theater program with the kids because I was bored and I wanted to make art. And so I made crazy improvisational plays with the kids at the private school where I worked after I, I like am following you every step of the way. And also I was like, I want to sing. I want to do stuff. And people were like, no, you're fat. You have to be a stage manager. And I was like, Wah. Um, so all of those things, like, I was just like, holy crap. Like we're like sisters from another mister. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember like being told you're the bat in this play. I'm like, wow. Like you don't have any words. Like I never even got to audition. You're the bat. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I was, they would always like, look at me and go like, she's going to be trouble. Give her a small role. <laughs> I was the mom and everything. Cause I was always taller and rounder than everybody. So I was always the mom, but, uh, you're so meaningful to me because you're a truly boundary-breaking, transgressive, sexually expressive Jewish woman, which is something that I've always aspired to be. Like, I feel like somehow when those of us who are educated in a conservative religious environment, um, like, like bounce back somehow in like in a transgressive way like we really go hard like I'm thinking about like Allen Ginsberg and like Dr. Ruth and Annie Sprinkle like there's something yes. about like Jewish weirdos like do you do you see yourself in that lineage I do actually yeah I do I, I and I especially love Annie Sprinkle Annie is like I just love Annie's attitude and what she's done for um post feminist porn and sexuality and uh, self-expression and how she's always done it there with a smile. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like just like always so comfortable with it and like cheeky and not like, yeah, exactly. Like she's such a nice Jewish lady who is also inviting you to look at her cervix. Exactly. Public cervix announcement. (laughs) That's right. You know, we're having you on the show today to celebrate the fact that you are about to embark on your first U.S. and European tour since 2017 to commemorate the 20th anniversary of your landmark album, The Teaches of Peaches. You will be performing the whole album in its entirety, which is so fucking exciting. I cannot wait to see the show when you get to Brooklyn. Tell me what it's like to revisit this material again all these years later and how you feel about reuniting with all of your fans in person for the first time after like this globally traumatic, isolated time. We're all so excited to be reunited with you again. Yeah, it's it's like a double whammo reunite, reuniting experience because not only is it just a pandemic reuniting but also been 20 years of reuniting and I feel like a whole different you know like people who didn't get to go out obviously nobody got to go out so they want to come out break out and then also for them this album means so much so maybe they haven't ever seen a Peaches show I feel like there's going to be a lot of people who've heard my music who's never seen me play and that's um, that's exciting and emotional. Oh, I know. I feel like we're gonna cry. Are we gonna cry? Oh my god! If I cry, it's gonna be bad. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta watch it. I gotta watch the, <laughs> the booze before the show. In your feels. Yeah, no. It's it's really you know, it's really emotional. It's it's really a. a I am really blown away by. Um, the trajectory of my, my, I don't like to call it a career of just my path, you know, and just all the things that have 
um, transpired from it and changed. And, um, you know, it's, it's truly beautiful. And all the, yeah. you know, all the, all the, the, when I first started, there was a lot of like one trick pony. What the hell is this music? What is this? You know, there was a lot of people, you know, like, yay, queer music. Yes. Empowerment, all that. But there was a lot of like, what the fuck is this? This is music, you know, or so, um, I don't, I just, it's also, I've been active all this time too. It's, it's, um, it's, I've always said too, that I want the mainstream to come closer to me. I don't want to get closer to the mainstream. And I feel like that has happened in, it has happened. I believe it. Yeah, I agree. It's happened. It's also obviously, you know, it, the, the world is, growing exponentially in horrible ways and beautiful ways at the same time. But yes, it's all in the mainstream of things that I have, um, you know, without the sort of vocabulary or language or even really, you know, in place that I helped to try and bring to the forefront. So whether, um, you know, there's horrible things happening, obviously, all the abortion bans and all the um, trans teen sports uh, bans and all the all of the LGBTQ pushback, but it's because it's in the mainstream, you know? Yeah. Right. You know, there was a great article on you by the CBC titled, The Teaches of Peaches, the spiritual godmother of WAP looks back on her debut album's 20th anniversary. And in that article, the author Andrea Warner writes, 20 years before Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion brought WAP to the dinner table, Peaches had earned a spot in Urban Dictionary, rankled rock critics, and subverted the male gaze. This is the legacy of the Teaches of Peaches, a record that was so far ahead of its time, we still haven't caught up. What are your feelings on being cited as a kind of foremother of feminist filth? Like, how do you feel as being cited wow. in this way? How, how fucking awesome is that? Yay. Hooray for me. <laughs> and, yeah, and, I agree. You know, and, and why I did it is just what I was feeling and what I wanted to express. It wasn't like, I'm going to be filthy and dirty and feminist. No, it's like, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't hear what I want to hear and I want to say what I want to say. And I, I bet there's a lot of people who want to say this too. You know, I want everybody. Yeah, they do. Yeah. I want everybody to sing sucking on my titties. Cause we all have titties. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you think that we'll ever truly catch up to the teaches of peaches as a culture? Or do you think it's always going to be like pearl clutchy, like now and forever? Um, I think it'll be more pearl necklace, but um, (laughs) I think that, um, to be honest, I think Fatherfucker is way more transgressive and it didn't get as much, um, it, it got more attention from more queer people telling me that is the album that they came out to, but in terms of Mm. mainstream and, uh, music world understanding it, it was just way too queer and I'm so proud of that. And I think people do, I think people have caught up with teachers of peaches, but I don't think they'll ever catch up with father fucker. You'll never catch me. (laughs) (laughs) One step ahead with my beard on my face. (laughs) 
I'm stroking my beard right now. <laughs> I'm stroking both beards. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, something that I find so fascinating about your journey is that you made a huge creative leap forward in 2000 after expatriating from Toronto to uh, you, you went to Berlin and then you released the Teaches of Peaches from Berlin and your whole life changed forever. What, what made you move there and what is it about Berlin that helped you become the artist that you wanted to be? Well, um, so I wrote the album in Toronto. I want to make sure okay. that, that is clear. Um, I was going through a lot of changes. Um, I I had thyroid cancer. It wasn't like I was suffering from it or anything. But if you know you have cancer, it, it's a mind fuck on your on your constitution anyway. And uh, and you reevaluate what you want out of life. And when um, I decided that I want to be an artist and, you know, I want to fully go into this. And, um, I, um, had a, had a, I was dissatisfied with my pants, fancy pants hoodlum band. And I was also met some, uh, like-minded people who also, um, dissatisfied with their own band. I've told this story many times. It's how the, I, I ended up having a band called the shit. Um, I don't know if you know the story or, if this is interesting, but I wanted to have a girl band with another friend. Um, and she said, I know a guy who lives next door who has a basement where he jams. And then there's this other guy I have a crush on. And I was really mad because I wanted an all girl band, but I went and jammed with them and I didn't say a word to them. They passed around a joint. We all got a high. And then we just, I got on my electric guitar. She played her bass drummer, and then there was a keyboard player and then we just started yelling profanities and sexual things <laughs> at each other. And we were having so much fun and all of us were so dissatisfied with our bands. And then we stopped and then someone yelled switch and we all switched instruments. And um, I, I went on the drums. I'd never played drums. And I was like, wow, drums are fun. And then I went to, um, you know, these keyboards and I was, I always thought keyboards were uncool. So I was like, oh, my God, there was this keyboard synthesizer. That is cool. And I started um, playing, and I was like, this is really fun. And, um, yeah, we just continued to jam. And after our first jam, uh, we all got together and said, we're the shit. We're amazing. We're the shit. Let's call ourselves the shit. And we said, this is what we've been waiting for, some connection with each other that's going to connect with an audience so we can just have a good time. And we're only going to write songs together when we're together. Um, as a group and let's rename ourselves. And I was, and I said, I want to be named peaches, not because of the struggle of the four women in the song by Nina Simone, but specifically just the last word she says, the way she sings the word peaches with such passion. I wanted her to be singing that to me. So I said, I want to be peaches. And my friend said, I'm going to be Sticky. And she has actually just changed her name this year to Sticky, uh, like legally. And then um, my other friend said, I want to be Thermometer. But then he ended up being <laughs> Gonzalez in the end. And then uh, another, the other friend said Maki. So, um, and everybody was, is very active in music. We all make very different music now. But I embodied that that really got me and that was we, we were a band for like a year and I really learned a lot about 
connecting to myself and the audience and my true, just, uh, just not holding back. And when everybody moved away, I got an MC 505. I didn't know what it was. I just walked in a music store and started playing it. I'm like, oh, I can be the drummer here. I can be the bass player. I can make weird sounds. Oh, synthesizers. Oh, they have drum uh, guitar samples. So um, I took that home in Toronto and I started playing it. But then Gonzalez was, I'm sorry if I'm a run on sentence, but Gonzalez um, was going to Paris and I said, hey, why don't I meet you there and we can travel around and we had instruments they don't we didn't have laptops then or things like that so we had these like instruments I had my groove box and he had this double cd player and we would go to bars and say hey we can plug our instruments into your stereo system and then we can Mm. play we can play for the whole room you know what I mean it was like whoa okay let's do that so we went to like Amsterdam and um we were in Paris and then we went to Berlin and we didn't know anybody there, but we found this cool, um, this cool spot called gallery Berlin, Tokyo, where a bunch of artists and musicians hung out and we were like, Hey, hi, we're from Canada. Can we play here? And they're like, yeah, Thursday. So we just played, we didn't even sing. We were just playing electronic music. And, um, uh, it was such a freeing, like it was, you know, the beginning of the, it was, 1998 actually so the wall had just come down like you know less than 10 years ago and there were these spaces in the east where nobody was living and artists were just filling them up and there was so much room and space for people to just make art and and party and do art and um that's what it was about and it was incredible and I had to go home and um teach kids. And, uh, I, I was really inspired. And when I went home, I started to make the album and I made the teachers of peaches. And then I went and visited, I sent demos over to a small label we met. And then I played a show there, you know, visiting and I got signed for like 4,000 Deutschmarks, which is 2000 euros for the album amazing but totally worth it yeah and I was like great I'm gonna move there because I had you know um saved my money from teaching kids and stuff so I was like I'm gonna just go there it was you know the internet wasn't what it is today so you're like you want to be near your label and um all those things so yeah and then when I moved there people were always they already knew my music because I had been sending sending stuff and um a month later, I was already like playing gigs and doing interviews, and um, I just went from there and kept playing and doing just punk rock shows with me and my machine, and it just kept growing. And I probably toured for three years that way, and then made Fatherfucker, and then toured that for three years, and then it went on and on and on. It's so it's so inspiring. I was in Berlin in 1995. Um, just very briefly. And I went to this place you probably know called the Tachilis Kunsthaus. Um, that and that was place my, was fucking crazy. That's where my studio was. Oh, shit. <gasps> Shut up. I can imagine you there so easily. Like in 1995, there was this giant room that like looked like it was the size of an airplane hangar, although probably it wasn't that big. And it was covered in hundreds of fish that had been spray painted silver and they were nailed all over the walls, just hundreds of 
silver painted fish all over this giant, giant space. And they were just playing the soundtrack to Twin Peaks really loud. And it was echoing off of these walls. And there was just these giant fish. And I was like wandering around it when there was like maybe four people in like this vast space. It was crazy. You know, that's that's a good point about the four people, because also there were always these crazy spaces and these insane things going on. But there wasn't a lot of people. There wasn't so many yeah. people like so that was cool too, um, yeah. It was it was interest very interesting time, but also very like confusing time in terms of like for queer culture. It was a bit confusing. There wasn't. It was like there is no queer culture because we're all together. But if there was like a lesbian scene, it was very like shut off or or the gay scene was very male like oh you can't enter sorry only you can't enter if you're female um or there was um like drag queen also just really like a very closed very like no you know so um that i i know that people rag on berlin now but i feel like uh, it's opened up a lot and some people will probably think that's bullshit but it isn't <laughs> um but you know for the yeah and in in Tachelis yeah they had like these small movie theaters you could just go in at any time or there was like four different bars on different levels there was like um you know people's studios I mine was just an open space and it was overlooking like bombed out buildings from my window yeah yeah it was I felt like Alice like down the rabbit hole and there, there was just so much space for people to do so many things. It sort of blew me away. Yeah. I, it turned into sort of like a squat Disneyland. <laughs> like they would take tours um, there and stuff. Oh, weird. Uh, for the last 20 years, your music has been an essential part of the soundtrack helping to fuel feminist activism, whether it's fuck the pain away or I don't give a fuck. In my experience, someone is always playing your music whenever women have decided to mobilize and hit the streets over the last 20 years. Now that abortion rights here in America are truly at a crisis point, how do you see your art in terms of it being fuel for the revolution taking shape today? Use it any way you need to use it as long as you're on the side of good, please. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've just made sure that I have my, um, thank God, thank God for abortion t-shirts lined up and my, um, Roe versus Wade t-shirts so that I can make sure that I always have a, a part in the show where I will be representing in that way. Um, and I feel very, um, very privileged to be able to, just help, um, like mobilize with just having a, you know, having a, 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 having a stance and having an audience to make sure that I say something. That's the privilege that I mean, so that I can, you know, help motivate, motivate people who are already motivated actually. But, um, I just, any way I can help. It's, uh, Noise for Now has been very active and uh, there's so many groups and it's, I don't, I'm just, I'm just floored by this whole insanity, debacle, bullshit. It's really damaging. 
the last time that I saw you perform, it was here in New York. You had dancers on stage wearing these incredible full body vulva costumes. It was just everything. It gave me so much life. Um, as I was preparing to interview you, I was thinking about that. And I was also thinking about a recent experience that I had while I was editing a piece for bust about Madame Gandhi. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but, um, she had this video in which a woman was wearing an elaborate wig that was shaped to look like ovaries and fallopian tubes and a cervix. And while I was editing the story, um, like we had to change the wording about it because we couldn't say female reproductive organs to describe the look. We had to, we had to, we landed on the phrase internal reproductive organs to describe the image, which was fine um, because of, you know, some questions about being sensitive to, mm -hmm. to trans readers. Mm -hmm. But it, it made me wonder if you have similarly had to adjust your ways of expressing yourself like we have around issues of anatomy and gender and sexuality in your art uh, when trying to connote a kind of female sexual power? Um, yes. And actually, you heard my reaction. I was like, what? I didn't even see that coming, what you were going to say, which is um, actually quite sad for me. So um, I feel like I'm always learning and growing. Um, and... Um, yeah, I feel like in a way what I was saying before about when I originally wrote music, this, these songs, there wasn't much language or um, a vocabulary. And um, it's very important. It's very important. Also inter intersectional um, language and uh, inclusivity in, in, in ways that we... We have to remember there are so many more ways to be inclusive and so many uh, sensitivities that we, we have to be aware of and that we're always learning. So um, it's important. It's important. And, and, and I, I value these, these lessons. Yeah, I mean, we're all just like evolving and growing and learning new ways to be better. I don't want to lose the the sort of like sense of revelatory joy of like the pussy power that you brought to us. I think that it's just like important to to denote that you don't have to have like a specific kind of anatomy. Like nobody cares what's in your pants. Like pussy power is for everyone who wants it. Right. We're all cunts. <laughs> <laughs> we are all cunts in our own special way mm -hmm. <laughs> after all of these years as a feminist icon peaches do you still consider yourself a feminist i consider myself an intersectional feminist humanist <laughs> I'm a humanist. Uh-huh. I want, you know, I, I'm a feminist. I'm also a humanist. You know what I mean? Like, I, Yeah, you can be more than one thing. <laughs> I, I want people to... Yeah. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a feminist? Absolutely. <laughs> I do. I, I believe that, that feminism means that, um, that all genders should be 
have the same rights and privileges yes. um, in our society and that we don't. And that when we see, especially um, as a, a self-identifying woman, when I, when I see um, women and, and gender non-conforming people not being afforded the same rights and privileges as, as uh, men, that we should speak out and say so. I think we also have I think to, that's feminism. Yeah, I also feel like women uh I feel like men of trans experiences get sort of the shaft in a way. And I feel like mm. there should be more um more love there. That's what I just want to say that because I feel like we always say like Feminism and binary, uh, non-binary, and feminism and women, and you know, men of trans experience right. kind of never, they never get mentioned in that way. They need love too. That's true. So that's right. Um. How has feminism impacted your career and vice versa? How has your career impacted your feminism? I think it's obvious. <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that. Like, well, yeah. It's a, just a, I know it's a bust question for sure, but I, I think that it's, uh, it's just, it, it, that's what it is. That's what it is. Right on the nail right there. So. Right. You you don't get much more feminist than the teachers of peaches. <laughs> I agree. Um, what are your, your hopes and your dreams and your goals and your plans for 2022? What is on your vision board? Oh, um, I think I'll do a tour, an anniversary tour. <laughs> sure. Why not? Yeah. Starting in a couple of days. Yeah. I think I'll do a, a big anniversary tour. Um, so that's like something I've always wanted to do. I've, I've kept my archive for, you know, I, I've, I have an archive of, of all my costumes, all my, um, you know, like 8,000 hours of footage and I've got, um, all my instruments or uh, everything that's ever been tour related, everything that's ever been studio related. So, um, this is a chance also to use a little bit of the uh, of a live archival moments. You know, um, I, I, mm. re, I reprogrammed the um, MC five hundred five to to play these songs again. So that was that was an incredible experience to realize the simplicity and the power of these songs through um, uh, this one machine. So um, that that was just a goal for sure. And also, um, drawing from, um, costumes from all different, from all different parts of my career to bring it out, you know, for the nerds, for the costume nerds. They're like, Oh, that was, yes. that was 2005. Oh, it's a Sam. That was the drummer on the, uh, impeach my bush tour, you know, like whatever. It's just, it's just <laughs> fun, fun, for me to, because, you know, there'll, there'll be like these like um, archival shows of, of people's objects and costumes and stuff like that. But to, to, to have it live in your show and make it active, that, that was also a goal for me. Bring um, back those as, nude suits. I'm bring a big, back those, yeah, nude yeah, suits. Oh my God. So much American apparel. <laughs> I, I, I could open it. I could open a, um, an American apparel store that is, um, has no, um, 
canceled people in it. Um, <laughs> and also then the second half, I, I want to focus on my new album and my, um, my new projects. And so there's a lot going on. What can you tell us about the new album? I'm excited for it. Um, well, I can't tell you so much about it. I, I have a lot of songs written, and let's see when I finish this tour if those songs, if those are the songs, if there's new songs, how it's going to take shape. I, I'm going to be open in that way. And um, but I do want to work with, um, I want to work with a dance collective that we've been developing together, oh. a nine-piece dance collective that's more about like human sculpture and understanding relationship between um, pop singer and their dancers and the the lack of ego or the ego and the relation to audience and um, yeah, we, we, a lot of discussions around that and um, that was kind of a little bit Coming out of pandemic, we got to do some workshops and some shows together and um, want to continue that work. Awesome. Amazing. This is my last question, and it is the final question that we ask all of our guests on Pop-Tarts, and that is, what you watching? It is a broad pop cultural question. We're talking about movies and television and books and music and podcasts and music videos, anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know about it because it is probably very, very cool. Peaches, what you watching? I don't know if it's cool, but I'm obsessed with uh, Grace and Frankie. Oh, I love Grace and Frankie. Oh, I am obsessed. I'm obsessed with Lily Tomlin specifically, just like I've never seen a – you know, a TV character like that in that age group, like just, I don't know. It's just, the show developed it, the first three episodes. I was like, Oh, I have to watch it, but I don't know. And then now I'm deep in it. I am well, deep they in do it. interviews together. They seem like they're just really homies. They seem like, yeah, totally. They need Dolly Parton back to nine to five part two. I really enjoyed, um, Someone Somewhere, Bridget Everett's new show. Me too. And um, very, very sad news about the actor who played her father. Um, yeah. Who passed away. But I, I found it super real and emotional. And I think I was so proud to see just Bridget just be Bridget and be accepted. And, it and was, Murray be Murray. And Murray be Murray. I know I've known Murray forever. Yeah, so... That that was awesome. Um, I yeah. So that's what I'm watching. That's what I'm watching. Amazing. Yeah. Um, this has been such a thrill and an honor and an oh. excitement and a delight to talk to you. We just love you so much, and your work means so much to us. Thank you so much for oh. coming on our show. Thank you so much. Oh, this is awesome. We are going to take the very briefest of breaks. And then when I come back, I'm going to ask Callie. And Callie, hopefully you're going to ask me, what you watching? What you watching? I don't know. I want to know. <laughs> Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after... 
consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via WolfieVibesPublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious, and I knew would make great podcasts, and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin I'm Rodney Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. So smart. I mean, so like, smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners, have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound. And we're back. (laughs) Kelly, we talked to Peaches. Can you believe it? Fucking Peaches. You know I love a lady that also enjoys a nude suit. Oh yeah, you you and Peaches have that in common, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> and now is the time of the program where I ask you because I gotta know and I want to know and I need to know, Callie Watts, what you watching? What am I watching? Well, I haven't been watching too much because um, I'm on my packing journey. But um, I was what you know I'm, I'm loving the Julia Child. I, it's done now, but um, there was an episode. Did you see the episode? That had Betty Friedan in it. Nope. Well, it is crazy. So it's um, like Betty Friedan and Julia Child ran into each other at some event. And Julia Child is like super nice to her. And Betty Friedan like shades her so hard for like doing women's work, you know, because she's like, she's like how basically like how dare you enjoy the kitchen? How dare you enjoy cooking? You're setting feminism back and then it really got into julia child's head and fucked her up a lot it's a really good interesting that's terrible it's an interesting episode 
Because, you know, you're like, I, I, so, you know, you get what the second wave was about, but then you're just like, let a bitch just cook. What is wrong with you? <laughs> you made her feel so bad and Julia Child is so sweet. And then at the end of that episode, she meets um, Mr. Rogers. So you will love that. Aww. And then I've been watching this show, Norseman, which I guess has been around since like forever. Like for, I don't know how long. I want to say 2016, but I could just be pulling that out of my ass. And my friend uh, Jog got me onto it. It's on Netflix. And it's kind of like Our Flag mean, equals death. You know, that pirate show on HBO that's like spoofing pirate life. But this yeah. is spoofing vi- Viking culture. And it's pretty funny. Um, not a lot of ladies in it, but you know, if you like our flag, it was that you would like this. I can't believe I'd never heard of it before, but it's ridiculous. Like, you know, cause they just get into the stupidest situations, much like our flag stuff. And then the last thing I've been watching is girls five ever new season two. Girls five ever. I am the worst. And I keep watching things that are really good while I'm working so I miss so much shit so I basically have to rewatch like all of it because I got a screener but um there's the lunch lord is hilarious this like lunch man I basically have to re-go back because every episode is so packed with all these little tiny nuggets and I just did myself a disservice by not <laughs> by watching it with in the background you know what I mean keep doing uh-huh. shows that are more worthy of my time. I should just stick to Riverdale in the background, which has totally jumped the shark now and is perfect back background TV because it's batshit bananas. What have you been watching? Thank you so much for asking. Um, the first thing that I'm watching is trash, but it's delicious, which is uh, season four of The Circle on Netflix. Do you watch The Circle? Oh my God, I love The Circle. This one. Have you been watching season four? The Spice Girls are in it. That is the gag of the season. I freaked out. I did not know going into it that the Spice Girls, not all of the Spice Girls, no. but Emma Bunton and Mel B., come in early on they they're not there from the beginning but pretty soon into it um they arrive and they they are playing under an assumed identity for for those of you who don't know what the circle is it's this reality competition show that's hosted by Michelle Buteau where people um stay in individual apartments in this one big building and they all interact with each other via like a, an internal social media system that's specific just to the game. So they're all basically like interacting on social media and they can either interact as themselves or they can catfish everyone else and, and actually uh, play with an assumed identity of someone else because they think that someone else would be more popular than they are. And there's periodically everybody has to, um, has to decide has to rate everyone in terms of who they like the best. And, and at the end, the most popular person wins money. So, um, uh, this season, two of the spice girls, scary and baby, um, were together playing one guy named Jared, which are kind of my favorite spices anyway. I mean, posh spice was meh. Scary was the best spice. Yeah, but I mean, Ginger did a did a lot of spicing. She was oh, a very spicy yeah, spice yeah. girl. Ginger did do a lot of spicing. 
She spiced up <laughs> It would be hard for me to choose my favorite, but I was very overstimulated that two Spice Girls were there. And so like all these people were like interacting with this dude named Jared, not realizing that they were in the presence of pop royalty. And then when it was revealed that one of the players was actually the Spice Girls, everyone flipped out and had like a total meltdown. And then there was all of this suspense around whether or not they would be able to ferret out which of all of the players playing was the Spice Girls. And that was really fun. I love them. So I recommend it. They will always um, be relevant to me. <laughs> I know. I love them. Um, something else I was also watching on Netflix was the Andy Warhol Diaries. Um, he, Andy Warhol, the artist, um, produce he put out a collection of his diaries in 1989 and it wasn't exactly his diaries it was basically the transcript of like these exhaustive interviews that he did over the phone with a writer named Pat Hackett and I remember it so clearly when it came out in 1989 um uh because I was 14 years old and I was still living um in the suburbs of New York and I was being very mercilessly bullied and I hated everyone. And I knew that I was going to be an art star and none of these bitches understood me. And no, nobody, nobody understood um, that I was going to go to New York city and be a big star. And so I would actually walk around my junior high school with a little backpack with this giant volume of Andy Warhol's diaries in my backpack that I had taken out of the library. And I didn't know what the hell he was talking about, but I very studiously read like, okay, Bianca Jagger was at studio 54 that night. And that's very important to know. (laughs) Like, I didn't know what he was talking about, but I read that thing like it held all of the secrets in the universe because it was going to prepare me to leave my shitty town and go to New York City where people would understand that I was an art star and where nobody would be mean to me ever again. Um, and here you are. And so it was, and here I fucking am. Hello, world. No, but I mean, it was instrumental in me, in me one day moving to New York and making a life for myself here. And so it was very nostalgic for me to watch a documentary based on that book because it was really formative for me when it came out in 89. Um, and they used AI to like have to recreate Andy Warhol's voice from all of his many interviews. So it was actually his voice reading them out loud via AI. And since he had like a very flat affect anyway, like it really, it really sounds like him, even though it's a robot because he sounded like a robot. (laughs) Um, it was really, it was really good, um, and kind of sad and wistful, and it made me nostalgic for a a past New York that I very much wanted to get to, but that I missed by the time I got here in two thousand. Um, and then the last thing, well, not exactly the penultimate thing that I'm watching, is um, something that I'm actually listening to. I am listening to the audiobook of the novel The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. Um, Louise Erdrich, uh, very recently wrote, uh, won the Pulitzer prize in the national book award. She's, she's a novelist and a poet and she writes children's books. Um, she is a native American and she also is the owner of a bookstore called Birchbark Books, which is a little independent bookstore in Minneapolis that focuses on native American 
literature. And um, this book that she wrote, um, the sentence is a ghost story that takes place in a small independent bookstore that focuses on Native American literature. Um, and uh, it's cool and creepy and funny and weird. And the big revelation for me listening to this novel on audiobook is that Louise Erdrich is doing the reading and she's an incredible actor. Like she has different voices for all of the characters and her reading style is so vivid and amazing. Like she should be an actor. I had no idea. Cause sometimes when, when authors read their own work, like it's kind of flat cause they're, you know, writers aren't always actors. But she really, she's really knocking it out of, out of the park. I really recommend if you haven't read The Sentence by Louise Erdrich, it's an excellent ghost story. Who doesn't like a ghost story that takes place in a bookstore? Like right. there's so many things that I enjoy at oh once. God, um, books and ghosts. Like yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I, I would say definitely go for the audiobook. It makes a big difference. Like she is an incredible actor when it comes to reading her own work. And I had no idea that that was true about her. So that's a, that's a very nice surprise. And, uh, the last thing that I've been watching is the majestic pop tarts, Patreon page. Yay. We really need your help to keep bust alive. And hopefully you'll be excited by all the goodies that we've hooked up for pop tarts listeners at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast. Callie and I with help from team bust have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include the links to what everybody has been watching for all 129 episodes. We've got totally ad free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there, including our amazing episode that we taped with big Frida and more. Please check it out at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast. Also, I would like to take a moment to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try, right? No, 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 no. You can, however, email both of us. I'm at Emily Rems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super-duper appreciate it. Until next time. (laughs) Sorry, we need to pause for a moment. As our producer, Luscious Logan, uses the bathroom, we don't want there to be any interference. We don't want to pick that up at the top of the show. So just hold for one moment. He's going to.